Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, we are back. It's another episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, uh, the darling of industrial logic, Mr. Tim Oninger. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Ryan? <laughs> I'm great. Good to talk to you again, Tim. It's uh, always glad to see you on the show. Tim has actually been very generous with his Rolodex, reached into it, and found a gentleman that he thought that, uh, first of all, that first and foremost that I would enjoy talking to, which um, I think he's absolutely right. But I uh, definitely thought that you, the audience, and our, our valued and beloved listener would like hearing from, and it's Mr. Mark Davidson. Mark, how are you, sir? Excellent. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me onto your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, really excited about the knowledge and, and background that you bring to the table, especially for this particular show. We've been on kind of a, an estimation slant lately, and I love the fact that you're going to be able to take us in a whole new direction uh, about a very misunderstood but... I think, as you would say, an absolutely critical role, and that would be the product owner. Uh, absolutely. The product owner is, in my mind, one of the single points of failure on any team, whether that's an agile team or not. And the product owner can lead you down a path that will be perfect and deliver the exact right product or, quite frankly, uh, deliver for you um, something that is not sellable, not deliverable, not usable. 
And so it's critical. I find the role critical. So in your, in your perspective or from your experience uh, or however that sentence should have been structured, uh, what do you see as the key roles of a product owner and where is their main scope of influence and, and the main impact that they have on the team? I think they're a combination of things. They're the, they're the visionary for the team as w- well as a person who can separate the forest, the grove, and the trees, if you will, from what the product should be doing. Um, they should be able to naturally interface with customers as well as the team. They should be this, They used to be called something called the shell answer man long ago and far away. Ask them any question and they can come up with a solid answer. This is, these are critical pieces to the role of the PO. So it sounds like a lot for a single person to take on. Have you seen the, the throughput, the capacity, the bandwidth of, of this person you know, act as a, a, significant, a significant issue in, in teams being able to deliver well? Absolutely. And it's one of those strange things or situations where a product owner – only has so much bandwidth of capacity capability, um, and all three are different, quite frankly. The understanding or the interfacing with customers has a tremendous impact. But additionally, it's the interfacing with the individual team, team members or teams, as well as other product owners for larger projects, that also becomes critical. You know, it always sounds so easy when you read the scrum guides. It says basically they express the stuff that's in the backlog and they set the order of it. And somehow by doing those, they're supposed to optimize the value of the work. (laughs) It doesn't sound that bad. Actually, it's an incredible role. It's a powerful role. It's a fun role. It really is. If played correctly, and that's that's the key, right? It's... This is not a role for the faint of heart. It's not a role for someone who is unable to perform any other role. This is a role where you are leading the direction of a team. You're prioritizing their work. You're sequencing it. You're validating it. And quite frankly, you're an active participant in the development of the product. So what kind of people, Mark, have you seen find success in this type of role, you know, who should organizations be reaching out to? Who are the the right candidates, or the or the likely uh, to be successful when they take on this amazingly complex responsibility? I I have a vision in my mind of two or three people when I and I answer that. It's someone who is who can get into the nitty gritty, who clearly has a vision and can express it, and understands the differences between the two and understands the step-by-step process to get from one place to the next. It is not a simple role by any means. So what else? So far, far too often I've seen where uh, these organizations, they adopt Scrum, which I, I think is a great step in, in the direction of agility. Uh, they find the, the project manager of the previously successful projects fill that scrum master role. They get him some training or her some training. Uh, that person has a psychotic break and eventually figures out you know, the difference between scrum master and, and project manager. They stop fighting against their, their ingrained nature of the, of the PEMBOK and they, they find success later on. Uh, you see the developers, they, 
you put them in a room, you start having discussions with them about test-driven development, continuous integration, and, and all these activities. And six months later, they're, they're proficient at XP. They've learned these skills. They've hired Tim and his company, Industrial Logic, to come in and, and really school them up. Or they take J.B. Rainberger, another friend of the show, his course. And you know, with all this consulting and training and focus and, and commitment, uh, they get these great craftsmanship skills down. With the product owner, time and time again, I've seen where the burnt out BA, um, the the business person who is re- the the reluctant product champion, you know, people that that normally in a in a scrum environment may not have a place they get shifted into this role seems to be an anti pattern in many of the organizations that I've seen. Have you noticed this? And what has been the impact when organizations take that tact? First and foremost, it. I've got to say, the product owner is a real role, right? It is a real legitimate role. It is a role that there are some BAs who can handle the role uh, if they enjoy talking to customers, if they can make a decision, if they can uh, produce a vision, if you will, right? if they can write well. But it's not just the BA. It's not just writing a, a long requirements document as all of us have done in the past if you've been around for any number of years. What we're also looking for is a person who understands how to interface with the actual development staff, can actually sit with a developer or a pair of developers, go through iterations of you want it to look like this, you want the features to work out like this, to be able to answer questions, to negotiate solutions. Quite frankly, some BAs sometimes have a hard attitude that says, I am the expert. Well, quite frankly, lots of people have great ideas. So it's the person who can listen to great ideas, incorporate them, and then turn around and say, okay, let's sequence it like this. Let's produce it like this. Let's understand what the next release should look like. So when we go to measure the efficiency of a product owner, I mean, are there metrics that you keep an eye on? Are there uh, interactions among the team that you're you're aware of? You know, what are the things that you're looking at? What are the things, or what are the things that you're measuring? And, and how do you effectively analyze, you know, the results and the and the ability of the PO to deliver in this role? I'm looking in four or five general areas. Right. First area is, are they an active participant? Right. Are they actively engaged with the team? Do they have office hours if they can't be full-time within the team? Are they addressing the team's needs? Are they actually driving the demo of the product? Are, they, are items that are in the actual demo being accepted because the product owner has already seen them, done them, addressed them? I also look at areas like product knowledge. Do they understand the stories? Do they understand where the product is going? Can they communicate that effectively? Can they communicate not just to the customer, but to the actual development staff? Um, Additionally, I'm looking at quality of the backlog, and that's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Is the backlog well-groomed? Is it maintained well? Are the, is everything about the card correct? Is it looking right? Is it sm- are the cards small or are they asking for you know, huge amounts of work to be done on an individual card? So I'm looking there. Um, 
is the card well formed? And I know some people may or may not say that that's effective, but you know, is the acceptance criteria appropriate? Is the size of the acceptance criteria appropriate? And quite frankly, are you allowing the development staff to address uh, the debt and assets, right? So the debt of the asset, it, it's a matter of, are you able to turn around and say, are we taking on some technical debt while we're taking on a new feature? So that's the, those are the areas I like to touch. And quite frankly, under each one of those, there are plenty of places where we can measure for results. You know, that's um, a lot of that requires a lot of contacts and it seems to require a lot of um, domain knowledge. So I guess I would have to say kudos to somebody who decided to start with a BA and not just a line manager or an architect. God help us. Um, or a developer. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, one of the best uh, product owners that I've ever seen emerge out of an ex- an organization that was making the transition from a a, tradi- a traditionally managed uh, project portfolio to agile was a BA. And the person, Tim, you hit right on it. Phenomenal amount of domain knowledge. And then back to one of Mark's key points, uh, loved working with the customer and the business side of the company. And so when you bring those two things together, I've seen great results out of out of the BA. Plus what I find is, is that they know where all the bodies are in an existing app. They know where the weaknesses are. They know where the concessions were made. They know where the compromises happened. And, they, and they're very good about the technical debt aspect that Mark, uh, that Mark brought up and which many people uh, overlook. You know, it's... A PO can easily look at, I'm sorry, a product owner can easily look at a, a plea from the team to remove technical debt, not realizing that that debt limits how much work the team can do safely in a given iteration or in a, in a given sprint. And it's that awareness that a BA can potentially bring, knowing the apps and the domain well, that, uh, that can truly make the difference. Now, it seems to it, me that um, you look at your testers, those are people with a lot a product knowledge, deep product knowledge. I mean, they have the technical side of this pretty well down. Do you do you find that they can move forward into getting contacts with customers and, and higher level business? Or do you find it's better to bring people from business and have them build their domain knowledge and technical knowledge? I've, in my experience, I have really not seen testers successfully make that transition. I'm not saying it's all-encompassing. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. But I've not been able to see the agility in the person's mind, right? And it's the ability to talk to a – to present multiple possible solutions to a customer and say, okay, I've got this possible solution, this possible solution, this possible solution. Even if you're walking through paper diagrams of what a product might look like, right? And literally walking through that with customers, you don't see the tester being able to do that. The BAs generally can, as long as they're not locked into a specific mindset. The art of being a product owner is the ability, and it is an art, not a science, is to be able to play ideas against each other and to say, all right, which one is the right piece for this particular situation Um, and understand how to balance that, right? So those are, I'm more inclined for the product owner. I'm also more inclined, quite frankly, one of your key people in a business or, I'm sorry, your business analyst. And, but the bigger problem with the business analyst is they're not, 
sometimes they're not out of the business. And I actually like product owners coming out of the business, even if you can borrow them for a year or six months. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that, Mark. I, I looked at that and I, and I realized that it seems like um, having the permission to actually make decisions seems to be more hierarchically based in most organizations, that people from business are entrusted with more decision-making, where testers have been locked up for a while. And likewise, it seems like there's, uh, in, besides product knowledge, there have to be contacts outside the organization. In Lean Startup, they say, get out of the building. Within the building, there are only opinions. Um, how much do you see that, you know, playing, both of you guys, how, how much do you see that playing into the game? I think it's critical. And I, I absolutely think it's critical. I've seen it in at least three products in the last couple of years where we've taken literally paper mock-ups, brought them out to customers, walk people through them, and get feedback. Recording those meetings, recording those conversations, watching eye movement, watching the way that the person is responding, watching body language has all become critical. Understanding that and, un and understanding that level of input and effort, and then being able to transfer that information effectively onto story cards and then ultimately to the development team is absolutely critical. It's, it is a very, it, getting out of the building, getting in front of the customer is the key piece. So what are the ways that you've seen it go um, horribly bad? So, so here's what I see. <laughs> okay. As a consultant, um, I go to a lot of places and I'll meet people who are the product owners, but um, at one of my clients, there was a meeting every morning that lasted an hour where they talked through what's next to be done, what's the most important thing, what are the challenges that are facing us, how do we move <laughs> forward. And at that meeting, none of the POs were invited, only the managers over the staff. Yes. So I see that as being like, oh, look, here's the company going and cutting off the PO at the knees and driving the managers in underneath them. Do you see a lot of that kind of stuff? I mean, what, what are your stories? Oh, wow. Um, so the key pieces of a product owner, no matter how, and I fight it on a continuous basis with clients, is the active involvement of the product owner. The product owner has to be at the stand-up, no matter what time of day or night. They have to have access to the development staff. And quite frankly, they have to be accessible by the development staff. And both of those are different. Um, office hours are, are key, whether or not you know, if a product owner can't be available 40 hours a week or 30 hours a week, fine. I'm going to be available from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock every day standing. You're allowed to come and, you know, and find me at those hours. It's that critical in nature that the role of the product owner is. Failure to do that has a tr tremendously detrimental effect. And then the key one is when the product owner goes into the demo, demonstrates something or sees something and says, that fails, right? If there's a failure during a demo, if the product owner owns that because they weren't available to the developer, maybe. It's that type of situation that I think hurts us most, as well as, quite frankly, going the wrong direction. So if that's true, then the product owner is really in charge of knowing where the project is. What's the manager doing? Clearing the path. It's servant leader, right? That's the, the <laughs> it's clear that the scrum master 
is the person who, and I use that term, is the person responsible for orchestrating things, clearing the path, clearing your blockers, making sure that all the integration points are being attacked, make sure, making sure that the work that your team needs from other teams is being addressed. Right? That's their role in life. It's no longer, I'm going to manage this, I, I, I've got to beat down on somebody, or I got to go kick somebody, or I got to hurt somebody, or I got to feed them pizza to make them work harder and faster, right? That's not the role of the manager any longer. So that also falls into um, some of my clients. A common question I hear from people who are in the PO role is they'll say, Tim, what do I do about velocity? How do I get people to do more? And of course, I'm asking why they think that's their job. And they say, well, we're supposed to, you know, optimize the value of the work, right? So we need to get more work done. How do we drive velocity as a PO? And quite often, they're very relieved when I tell them it's not their business. It's, it's, a, it's not their job. B, their job is to do two things. One is prioritize the work. And the second piece is express the work, right? Whether that's taking in the knowledge and sharing it back, testing the product, work hands-on with the product. But it is not their job to turn around and say, I need more, I need more, I need more. Let the team build what they need to build. Yeah, I think it's a confusion between optimizing value and volume. And I think people get lost on that. That's, that's the thing is I think I want people to, to understand that a PO's job is not to maximize volume of work. It's, it's to recognize that only so much is going to be done. What's the most valuable thing we can do? I violently agree. And I, it, it's the, the part of their job description is to value the work to be done, right? I would like to be able to trade off between all the pieces, right? I'd like to be able to trade off, I got, I've got this feature, this feature, this feature, and quite frankly, it's the depth of this feature, I have to understand the breadth of the feature, what do I need to cut off, where can I cut, where can I curb the amount of work so that I can turn around and play off other features and be able to get other things into the product? That's their job description. What happens if they get off track, Mark? Who uh, who gets them back on the rails in your experience? Generally, I, so combination of things. First, the developers gen will generally do it if when they recognize that they're going off the rails. If the product owner is going off the rails, then what happens is the development staff winds up going off the rails. They built something wrong. They've got to rework it. They've got they now have a problem that they've introduced. Or worse, they've got something released. And so they're going to see it, and they're going to start holding the product owner accountable. Additionally, the Scrum Master has to hold the product owner accountable, right? The product owner accountable. That's, that becomes critical as well. An area that I've struggled with uh, when leading Agile teams or, or when I've been a Scrum Master on a team is being able to identify the moment when the product owner is off the rails. Do you have any insights there as far as the telltale signs, the, the, the gotchas, the tells that uh, people should look out for to know that, hey, there might be a smell here, there might be an issue here. Rework is a really good indicator. If something gets out and it's got to be reworked, I, there are, and there's a problem with some of that type of logic, I may release something as the product owner knowing that in two months from now, I'm going to release something with greater breadth or greater depth, recognizing I'm going to rework that area. But if I have to rework something because I made a mistake right, as the product owner, 
then I've got to own that. And those, those type of tells, when the customer base has a problem early on with something, then you can also see, again, that's where a product owner is not doing what they're supposed to be doing in getting the early feedback and understanding, okay, this is how we're going to move forward. This is how we're going to move forward. So that's where I would look. Now, Mark, clearly you're bringing some some deep knowledge into the into the product owner role. What are some of the what's some of your background? So, for so some of the listeners who may not be familiar with you, and this is the first time they're hearing uh, of or about you, you know, what kind of uh, backgrounds have you had? Not backgrounds, but what kind of background have you had in the agile world, and especially around this product owner uh, role? I, I'm one of the gray hairs in the industry. Been in the industry. <laughs> for for over 30 years now. Uh, started as a developer, moved forward uh, into the dark side on project management. And it's, 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 it's a horrible transition. Um, went, did a bit of architecture and then started to teach the Agile way, if you will. I adopted it uh, in 2000, 199, uh, and started to teach it about six years ago. So I love it. It's the, it's the greatest experience in the world. We actually get to deliver something, which is just an incredible thing, right? It truly is. It's the magic of what we do, right? Yes. Spending all these times laboring, and then at the end you see an, an outcome, not an output, an outcome Absolutely. That, uh, that's valued in the marketplace. Can you, I'm sure, you know, with the being one of the gray-haired and gray-haired <laughs> people in the industry and Tim and I being two of the no-haired people in the industry, um, we've all seen some crazy stories here. Mark, when can you remember a product or can you think of a product where the PO clearly went wrong, the team delivered exactly what was asked, uh, but it was still just not effective in the market? Um, I delivered a $6 million product. Uh, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, um, to the market, and it changed my life. And we spent a ton of money on this product. And it, I mean, it worked perfectly, but there was no market for it. And I can't name the company because I'll get, get in a bunch of trouble, the world I hurt. Um, but it made a difference to me a, in, in my gut. It made a guttural change to my life where it was a matter of I – convinced myself, I will never do this again. Um, I've, I've taken on the role of the product owner at times when the product owner hasn't been effective. Um, so it's been fun, but I can't, I can't name a name because the company's still in business and I might get in a lot of trouble. You know, when I, I think of the product owner as the CEO of the product, right? Great, and that- great, great analogy. Full authority, full responsibility. So Ron Jeffries is someone who on Twitter hammered this point into into my head very effectively, and, and I fully agree. The PO is responsible for the success of the project and the product. They are that sole person responsible. And, and when I think about it like that, I got to wonder how things like, you know, maybe I'm showing my age here a little bit. Pepsi Clear. Yeah. I, Do you remember Pepsi Clear? Yeah, I've got a list of those type of things where it's just, okay, how did McDonald's come up with McSpaghetti, right? <laughs> you just yeah, look at it, right? How did, Coors was selling spring water at, a, at one point. Then. How do you come up with ideas like this, right? Um, so, yes, um, I, I see 
product owner owning the product, owning the business model, and actually owning the value statement, what we're going to produce, how much we're going to make, how we're going to make it, what the market segment looks like, what the product roadmap should look like, and then helping implement it. And by the way, anybody who thinks that's a part-time job is sadly mistaken. Is sadly mistaken. That's a hard job to do. And you can't just give it to anybody who just happens to be available. That's just, that, that wastes a ton of money. So when we say words like success, that's a pretty loaded word. It can mean a million different things to a million different people. So success and failure are always, we have to qualify, right? Okay. Um, so Roman Pickler... What he'd said on his blog was, um, a successful product does a good job for its users and customers, and it benefits the organization developing it. Sample business benefits include entering a new market or market segment, meeting a revenue target, and strengthening a brand. Um, does, does that kind of match what you think of as success? I guess. I'm gonna, I was going to qualify that a little bit. In a sense that I want success has to, if you include nonprofits, it has to solve the problem for the users, right? So I, profit profit making companies, obviously, you're in business to make a living. You're in business to make money. Nonprofits, you've got to turn around and look at it and say, am I delivering the appropriate service, the appropriate features, functionality, product? to the consumer of the product. So that's where I would go. That's pretty cool. Now you, you've listed a lot of things that were like financial and, and forecasting and stuff. And on this blog, we tend to talk a lot about um, the incremental way of working. So you've probably seen there's people here talking about no estimates and, and uh, no backlogs yes. and unmanaging and all kinds of cool stuff. So, What's it, how is it different when you're a PO of something that is defining itself as it moves, as on the fly? Wow. It's a matter of your product owner is working with iterative incremental, obviously, to deliver to a customer or customers or representative base of the customers. And they're getting continuous feedback. So in my mind that feedback has to come into your product backlog. Now, whether or not you call it a backlog that's 200 items long or just the next month's worth of work, both are fine. You know, I, I use Kanban all the time to manage a backlog, right? It's just give me a prioritized list and let me work down the list. I don't care if you've got 30 in the items in the list or 400 items in the list. I can only work a sequence, so let me work my sequence. Um, for the no estimate stuff, I have other questions, but I'm not going to go into there. There are currently, there are wars going on over that. In my opinion, the no estimate stuff, all well and good. I just want to know that there are other ways to make sure that everybody is in a violent agreement, my product owner and my developers on what's going to be developed. Yeah, I think that's the best way to handle the no estimates question. <laughs> You're going to get a lot less Twitter traffic going that route. Um, I've had teams that have worked with estimates and teams that have worked without estimates. I think it's part of the maturity of the team. I think that there are two sides on the estimate stuff. There's the upfront estimates, you know, the B-duff stuff, 
I'm going to do some big upfront analysis and big upfront understanding and decomposition, et cetera, and estimate this thing. Um, I've been with, pe- with teams that have had products that they're going to build that are 80 to 120,000 hours worth of work, right? And so I, you, you just at that point, I'm not sure estimates are any value. On the other hand, the conversation early, you know, late in the game when we're about to build something, it helps to drive the conversation, right? It helps to drive, yes, we're in agreement right, about this product, about this, the feature that's about to be implemented. So now I, I simply can't help myself. As a, as a product owner, and Mark, with, with your deep background in the product owner role, you know, when, when a team starts looking at a no estimate setup and a business starts moving in that way, you know, what is the, what's, what's the thing that as a product owner, you look at that, that whole mentality and think, ah, this is really going to hurt my product. You know, what is that one linchpin, linchpin thing that you, you feel like you're losing I think there, when they go in that direction? I think there are two pieces that I think you're losing. The first one is me as the product owner, I want to be able to make trade-offs. And so if I know something is going to take this amount of time versus this amount of time, if you say to me, hey, Mark, I'm going to do this. This is going to take me probably the better part of a month versus, hey, Mark, I'm going to do this. This is going to take me the better part of a week or the team the better part of a week. I want to know that so I can play things off, right? I, I need to understand that in order to make critical value decisions. If something's going to cost me $25,000 to implement, because it's going to take me, uh, I don't know, 20 uh, person weeks, then that's one situation. If it's, something's going to cost me a couple of grand because it's going to be done in, you know, in a day or two, well, heck, get it in there. So it's those type of things that I, that's one side of the equation. Um, and it's key, I think. The other one is I want, the develop, I want to make sure that the developers agree on what it is. And if I turn around and I say, okay, guys, well, gals, what does this thing take to do? Um, your the response is, if three developers say it's going to take a week, and the rest of the team turns around and says, "You know, this is a month's worth of work." We have a we have a disagreement on the, the set of product that we're going to build or the piece that we're going to build, and it's those questions I want to make sure we surface. So those are the two pieces. I think one is the trade-off, and one is, do we have agreement on what this thing really is? Wait a minute now, Mark. Don't you think you should just take the shortest possible estimate from your team? <laughs> and if you're really right, you divide it by two and then offer, <laughs> and offer pizza, right? That's right. Been there. I, you know, I, the truth be told, right, at 30 years ago, I had no problem driving teams very, very, very hard. I remember having conversations with the ownership of a company, which is now gone, um, where I said, hey, look, at least a third of our staff is going to quit. I will get this out the door. But in order to get this out the door, people are going to hurt and people are going to quit. Right? So, I, and I haven't done that in 15, 20 years. But I remember those conversations and I never want to have those conversations again. That's just craziness, right? So. Yeah, it, it's amazing that, that even in... You know, they, I think they call that the it's the theory X management, right? That uh, absolutely that people still think that that works. And what most people don't understand is that you know not only is sustainable pace humane, right? First and foremost, it's the moral way to to interact and to manage and to deal with others. But 
a lack of sustainable pace, good people will just find... Well, basically, it burns people out. Right. And a, and a burnt-out developer, one, delivers crappy code, and number two, finds a better job. And quite frankly, they don't care. They start to not care about what they're delivering. So I like sustainable pace. I like the concept of... You're good developers, right? You're really good developers. They're putting in the hours that they need to in order to be able to get the product going. And then they're putting in hours on top of that to, to self-learn, right? to teach others, to grow others, to teach at events, to attend uh, conferences, to attend meetups. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to beat them up. I, don't wa- I, I want them to deliver the best possible product to me. Right? I want them to contribute. That's really the word. Oh, that's good. So... Um... PO is hard work, and and you know, yes. here's this person in charge. Um, we really talk a lot about individuals and interactions, and you're talking about not beating up the developers. So I think this is a good point, maybe to turn this around too. Um, this poor PO is a single point of failure, and a lot rides on them doing a pretty good job most of the time. What are the interactions we can use to support them and help them do a good job? Join As developers them, and managers. Uh, join them in meeting with customers. Have become a second, uh, lo- you know, second contact. Join them in the conversations that they're having during the presentations. Join them when they're doing product announcements. Show when they're doing their sh- uh, presentations to other product owners. Right? It's that point. It's that involvement. So you get the feedback as well. You, you understand what's going on. I mean, that becomes the critical part, right? It's what we said earlier, get out of your chair, right? Go get out of the building, go understand, right? and become an active participant in the product. I think that's really beautiful because a lot of times people are given a PO role, and because they are the single point of failure and they're single throat to choke, I hate that. It's the truth, right? I, I, I just hate that line, though. It's just like, I yeah, agree. we're here to choke people. Um, but as that, they often feel like they're solely responsible for doing their work alone. Oh, you got to help them. You got to support them. The bigger problem is when the rest of the business doesn't support them. I, what I've seen is the other side of the equation. Hey, this is your role. And oh, by the way, you never got, you never got rid of your old role. That's the, that's the key that kills us, right? That's the key that kills us. This is a real, and I said that earlier, this is a legitimate full-time job. And it's not easy. Right? Now, we have to manage it. We have to measure it. Are we being successful? There are ways in which we can certainly measure. We certainly can say, all right, are they active participants? Do they understand what the product looks like? Do I understand the vision? Do they understand the quality that, you know, that, that has to go into it? Do they understand the trade-offs between whether they're going from um, a this product direction versus this product direction. Can they talk to those situations, right? Those are all critical, but they need help with it. This is not simple. Are they allowed to take chances sometimes? Maybe, you know, a PO believes in a feature that isn't exactly what his customers have asked for. Can they be wrong sometimes? Absolutely, without question. They absolutely can be wrong. They're... they're humans, right? On number one. Number two, they're testing. So the critical piece of this puzzle is they don't know 100% you know, the future. They've got to be able to say, okay, 
let's do this type of test. Let's do an A-B test on it. Let's figure out, all right, which is a better way of going through this. Right? And it may be through mock-ups. It may be through actual released code. It may be an understanding that, okay, we're going to do it this way, and then if it doesn't work, here's the transition to the next version of this, if you will. How much of an influence do you think the dev team should or, or can have on the PO? And, and the motivation behind that question is, you know, what happens when the dev team starts asking for evidence of a direction? Because I've seen that play out as well, and sometimes not really in, in a positive way. Um, you hope that the team is pulling together and hoping that the team is being positive in their presentation of that. They're, yeah, so so let's say it's a very respectful right. uh, pushback, that the development team sees a feature that they don't believe the market will support, but it's been prioritized as number one. This is what we're going to release with. And as that interaction happens, I, uh, go ahead. So in, in my mind, product owner, as you said, is, a sing, is the CEO, right? So they get the decision. Now, as the development team, you have the absolute right to challenge. Right? If we're doing something wrong, challenge it. If you don't think it's the correct answer, ask for proof. Ask, where did you come from? Who, which customers did you speak to that gave you back this feedback? Which business item, um, which sale? If you're building a product and you've got to get a couple of features. I spoke to a client a couple of days ago. They turn around, one, they keep a they literally keep space in their backlog in order to be able to add new features as clients ask for them. So if a new prospective client asks for a feature, they've got a little space in their backlog in order to be able to address it and get it out pretty quickly. You've got to be able to ask the hard questions. You've got to be able to say, all right, why are we doing this? Where, where do you see that? How do you see it fit? What client told you this? Right? What market research did you get? Or is it my competitor? My competitor just came out with this. If I don't have this, I'm, I'm in trouble. And I think this is where uh, the PO, while clearly is the CEO of the product, I think the scrum master comes in at that CIO level, right, where um, managing the relationships between these different groups and teams and, and making sure that the interactions are positive and, and, and leading to progress. But at the same time... Um, that those challenges can actually happen, that a dev team can throw the challenge flag, that, that that's a safe thing to do. And, and I find that um, the stronger the PO, when you have this amazing product owner who's able to, to move mountains and get these amazing products out, there's typically a very um, influential scrum master with a very soft touch in the background. Do you think that's a fair uh, way to look at it? Without a doubt, yes. I think that there's so long ago and far away when when some of us were kids, there were the three amigos, and then the three amigos got changed into another version of three amigos, and then it got changed into another one. One of the iterations was the product owner, the scrum master, and your tech lead. Right, that was one of the iterations. That that triumvirate, that group of three, is critical to the success of a product. That actually, Tim and I have had conversations in the past about. You know, is it an additive function or a multiplicative function about is the, and I see Tim smiling as, as I say that, is it, <laughs> is it a matter of do you, if you have an extraordinary product owner but a poor scrum master or a poor, poor tech lead, can you succeed, can you do, and can the other ways around, can you succeed with the other, you know, the other solutions? 
the other combinations. I might argue that you need the three people. The three people have to hold respect for each other, and they have to be able to work with each other, and they got to be able to challenge each other. And it's 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 open kimono, right? It's hey, look, we're all human. Let's just make this work, right? Well, it, it's such a fascinatingly challenging position, right? So it is. the product owner, it's part, it's a project manager, a product manager, leadership mixed in there with some BA and testing skills. You know, they have to accept the product. They have to be able to do all these things. Such a mix and grab bag of skills that without those supporting uh, roles of a scrum master and a technical lead, I can't even imagine someone keeping their head above water. I believe that to be the case. I also think that the, the combination, it has to be the three players. It has to be, in order to be successful. I think the key for a product owner is the ability to see a forest, to see a grove within a forest, and then to see an individual tree, and understand and make evaluations on all three, play, on all three play, playing fields, if you will. Right. You know, Tim just shared... Uh, a link to one of his uh, excellent posts. I've read this post actually, Tim, and I, I actually keep it handy. Uh, uh, it's in my it's in my short list of of things to hand to people new to Agile and Scrum. Uh, the question that that it raises, or one of the questions, and I'll put this link in the show notes. It's titled uh, "Product Owners Maximizing Value," and it was from August of this year from uh, our good friend, the Agile Otter. You know, part of his post is about defining value. Yep. And I find that to be incredibly difficult for most organizations because traditionally we've all, you know, like we said, you know, Mark, you have gray hair. Tim and I have no hair. We've been around the block. We've seen um, organizations are very good at telling teams what to do. They're very good at driving to cost and timeline. But when it comes to earned value, it's kind of, yeah, we got there and then they move on quickly. Uh, or measuring value, well, it's, it's yeah, we think it's okay. Let's get out of let's get out of this conversation. But when it comes down to defining value, I find that's where the conversation gets squishy. Uh, if you don't have that value definition, the product owners toast. So, what have you seen where they where the organizations have been able to come to consensus and actually put that goalpost in place for the product owners so they even know what their target is? Boy, this one's a tough one, and. It's tough for all organizations. It's, it's a matter of some of it is Boolean. If I don't have this, I don't have a product. Right? So those are the easy ones. Right? That, that becomes the easiest part of the, the question. It's I can't have a sales order system if I can't place an order. Therefore, I have to be able to place an order. Yeah, they call that table stakes. That, that's, it, it really <laughs> is, right? It's you can't get dealt. You, you can't play the game unless you actually at least walk in with table stakes, right? You can't get your first couple of cards. On the other side of the equation, now the question is: Is it the breadth and depth of the actual product, right? And now it's a matter of: Is there an incremental sale? Are there incremental revenue streams? And what are the margins on those revenue streams? Can can you prove some of that? Meaning best guesses, because quite frankly. Forecasting the future is tough, right? All of our crystal balls seem to be cloudy. Anybody who's got a really good crystal ball and can predict the future, we have a really good you know, time in the market one of these days. So, Mark, this might be a good time for you to give your Twitter handle so that for those out there that believe that guessing is the wrong analogy, they can light <laughs> you up individually. <laughs> at, 
at Agile Delivery. All right, good. <laughs> and by the way, I hold I hold the same opinions that you do, so feel free to ping up at Ryan Ripley about uh, guessing and estimates and and value uh, equations. Yeah, I. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. I, a, I interjected. Not a not a problem. When long ago and far away, when I got my PMP, you know, it was the you had to remember how to do earned value and you had to calculate value and you had to be able to, and, and all that's really wonderful, except for the fact it didn't have any basis in reality. I'm sorry. I still love my PMP and still I still learn a great deal. Right. Uh, I still have a great deal in in my backlog of of skills from the PMP. So don't yell at me for PMP. On the, other, <laughs> on the other side of the equation, though, right, it's a matter of can I show incremental sales from this feature? Do I need to be able to do a zip plus four in the U.S.? Do I have to be able to pre-populate the plus four on, you know, or validate a plus four? The answer is not on your first release, right? Now, maybe it's on the third or fourth or fifth release. Maybe. Right. But... Let's turn around and say, okay, here are, here's the incremental value. Here's what I'm going to be able to accomplish. Right? Here's who I can sell to. Really good examples are, here are prospects that will buy this. Right? Here are customers who will subscribe more. Or here are people who extend a subscription on a, on a SaaS product. It's that type of thing you've got to be able to use to say, okay, here's validating it. Right? You know, it, it's the really strange part about this is this is a really hard role. And this is a, I can only think of literally three or four people who have played this role very, very well, who knew the customer extremely well, who knew the idea of where the market was going really well, who knew the competitive products in the field very well, who were able to take to the trade shows and get feedback. One of the keys that I think that, that provided the most incredible value to me was when I was brought to a trade show and started to show some things, and the people would say, why is it there? Right? And the other ones were, of course, man, that makes complete sense. Or that was ingenious. And the, and the product owners get credit and kudos on, on all of it. So. You know, when, when I think about what to deliver and what not to deliver, a term keeps popping in my mind, and that's the MVP, right? The, the minimally, minimally viable product. And I'm wondering if that term is now too loaded to be valuable, or are you still seeing value in product owners defining that up front? So I enjoy two sides of this equation. I enjoy the minimum viable product is, is, is critical, I think before the minimum viable product, you wind up with a walking skeleton or a backbone of the product so you can understand the architecture and understand the infrastructure and be able to walk through that with the product owner and say, okay, I want to get rid of my architectural risk or minimize my architectural risk. I want to minimize some of my development risk. Get them to understand that, then turn around and progress to minimum viable product. What I've done in the past is I've actually taken, built story maps. And again, for a client that Tim and I shared, I built a 40-some-odd-foot story map of a product. And on that map, we turned around and we said, okay, here's above the line, below the line. And then we turned around and decomposed it and said, you know what? Here's release one, release two, release three. Um, the fun part was the client turned around and had given estimates of six months, and we did it in four days. Um, 
because we did it with a story map. We did it, huge spot on a wall, big invisible, and people started walking by and said, what about this, what about this, what about this? So that's a fun piece of this. So I like the minimum viable product, but I, quite frankly, um, sometimes you've got to do a little bit more than that. Sometimes you wind up with a little bit less in order to get feedback. Both are you know, okay. Well, I, I'm with you. My only problem with minimum viable product is that middle word. Right. And some people think viable means that it's capable to be sold and make money in the marketplace right now uh, in competition with other similar products. So, you know, a minimum viable product for getting from one place to another is it's going to have to be a train with tracks and high speed rail and all of the zoning, right? That's that's minimum to be viable. And so that always kills me. So what I've started doing with my people now is I talk about um, controlled disappointment. <laughs> oh, so the it. idea of a controlled disappointment is I can show you something and you say, oh, that's that's all right. That's pretty good. It would be a lot better if it would only do X. Or, you know, if you could add M and Q and Y in there, that would really have something. So it's just enough disappointment for people to tell me what they want next. <laughs> I love it. I, it, it. It makes complete sense. We do that with paper models. I did that uh, years ago. I worked with a woman who was a cognitive engineer, and her specialization was the ability to do two things, place thoughts in your mind and read your mind. Um, she had a PhD. She was brilliant beyond all, brilliant beyond all approach. And um, I would watch her take a minimalistic piece and just say, okay, what if, what if, what do you think if, how might we add this, right? And she was absolutely one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Um, Love her to pieces. Uh, and she's in uh, Ohio at the moment, in Columbus. But. You know, um, I know that we're going to be running short on time shortly. Um, but I do want to get this in there. Um, this is an upsetting thought. So okay, uh, just want, want to warn you. This uh, PO role, that's near superhuman. Yes. So the question is... Should we actually have a workflow that requires us to have superhumans on it? I think it, you don't have to have superhumans. I think what you have to do is share, have shared responsibility. So um, if you have multiple product owners, so you can certainly say on a product that's large enough, okay, let's have a team. Let's have a tag team group. Right? That's completely viable, completely valid. It's a, as long as there's good communication. Yes, it's a hard job. Yes, it's got to be some. If you're talking about a team, of, a development team of seven, a product owner full-time on it certainly is, is viable, right? If, in fact, with support potentially. But if you've got a product, and I've been on products where we've had hundreds of developers, you better have a team of product owners, and you better have people who are supporting each other, backing each other up. Because if someone gets sick, you need the backup. Right? And you need to be able to share ideas. So you know what's more powerful than any mortal man? A mortal woman? Three mortal men. Yes, I agree. Yeah, if you want a superhuman, then, then combine multiple people together. I violently agree. I, you know, my response to a, a mortal woman is because I'm married for 35 years. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, yeah, I should have said a mortal <laughs> being. Three mortal <laughs> beings. 
I agree with you, a team, right? And it works. It, we pair program for a reason, right? Um, again, in a prior life, I would write contracts all the time. I would actually pair on contracts. I started that process with my previous uh, employer, and it made complete sense. It's the same bloody role. Pair on the event, right? Yeah, at least pair. Sometimes mob, sometimes even bigger. Agreed. So as far as uh, tools and techniques, right? So we have we have a lot of things on the programming side. We have these test-driven development. We have mob programming. We have pair programming. We have these techniques. Some of those translate over pretty well. An area that has caught my interest that I wish I knew more about, and I'm wondering, Mark, if this is something that you've dug into at all from a PO perspective, would be the innovation games. You know, the, the buy a feature. I think even the, the walking skeleton is something that they – uh, have a game around as well. Have you seen traction uh, from those types of activities and, and effectiveness with uh, your business partners? I have not. I've I've played with the ideas of buy a feature. I have played an awful lot with uh, the walking skeleton, defining it, and then turn around and fattening it up as appropriate on a on a release process in a story map or a series of story maps. Um, I've built, I've, I do a huge amount of what I do most on with story mapping and taking really complex problems, decomposing it, and then turn around and, in essence, build runways that say, okay, this is release one, this is release two, this is release three, or this is above the line, below the line, now I turn around, and what's above the line? Okay, let's start sequencing that, and let's find out how to put that together. Those are the tools I've used. The Beauty of that is huge, big, invisible, right? And I, I just, I'm a strong believer in big, invisible. Your developers understand the trade-offs. Your project managers, your business owners, they all start to understand the trade-offs. And quite frankly, you'll get a lot of feedback that way. So that's the tool that I've used the most. It's simple. It's a three-by-five index card, blue tape, and a 20, 30, 40-foot wall, or movable partitions. So... Um, every once in a while, they kind of wind up with strings on them. They wind up to show uh, predecessor-successor relationships. Yes, I'm a PMP. Um, or use multi-car- multicolor cards, multicolor inks to show um, sequence and or priority and or critical nature. So, It, it is amazing how clever we do want to get with our, our fancy tools and our, our applications. But when it comes down to it, you know, a 20, 30, 40-foot wall full of uh, index cards and some stories and asking people to decompose that and sort them and order them and prioritize them. I've never seen anything more effective than that. It's just amazing how the tactile nature of moving a card is meaningful and how breaking that into three Post-it note type activities and then keeping those together and, and seeing the big picture and, and watching the light bulbs, you know, 50 people huddled around a wall. Uh, is powerful, especially when they start having conversations that they never would have had. So here's a fun one for you. I always put, um, I put those up. I put those card walls up. And one of the tricks I like to use is when the card wall is up, leave it up, and then turn around, put green post-it notes on every completed feature and every completed card. Suddenly you start to get a feeling, okay, a third of my cards are done. I'm about a third the way through. If we're not going to cut off the tail, whatever that word means, but... If we turn around and we say, okay, start to make it big and visible, then 
we can start making trade-offs. Or we turn around and see, you know, we've got a third of the cards covered with green post-it notes. Those are done. I've gone through half my budget. All right, what's the other third I'm going to want to you to do? And that allows you to start having those decisions or discussions. And those are very powerful discussions. And I, I've seen, like I said, just some very interesting outcomes from having just big visible things. Uh, I've never seen uh, in my past, especially using tools, and this is just picking on one of them, TFS, for example. You know, I've never seen a rich conversation around moving an electronic story card around, but when you actually pick up that note card and uh, you look at the back and you see the acceptance criteria, and then someone has to scribble in something new because they have a different perspective, and, and those conversations, they're just rich and deep, and it, it, there's something about doing something physical that I think makes the brain move, move and work and, and, and process just a little bit better. I think that uh, you can actually sum those up in two primary characteristics. One of them is that in the physical environment, you are unrestrained in your creativity. Agreed. If you have colored markers, you have stickers, post-its, you have tape, you have paper clips, you can take a photo on your phone, Yarn. print it on the printer and attach it to the card. Yarn. You can do anything you want to in the physical space. And I have never seen a virtual card that was even, you know, one-eighth as flexible in its best day for the things you may want to do to it. So you know, I don't have anything against my brothers and sisters doing, you know, Rally version one, Jira, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have nothing against them. I, but so I, I have personally not found the value in online tools. And, and you have a comment. So I want to follow your comment with my last uh, characteristic. Sorry. I was going to say, even when I've had, when I've been using Jira or Rally or version one um, or other things, right? I often have a card wall up anyway. And if you have two locations going, I have two card walls up, and we talk about what moved at the stand-up so we all understand where we're going, right? Again, by the way, the rules for a stand-up are pretty simple. 45 seconds to start the conversation, 45 seconds per person, 45 seconds to end the conversation, and then hang up the phone. Just as a rule. That's my personal opinion. And then anybody who, sh who talks too much, the next time the person who didn't get to talk gets to beat that person up. It's a personal opinion, not, <laughs> not necessarily those in the management, which may be different, but that's Mark Davidson's statement. Sorry. Yeah, we, may, we, may be do, we may do things slightly different because I actually am totally in violation of scrum rules about stand-ups, but that's not really why we're here today. I wanted to mention the other thing, the characteristic that's different is there's something, um, the first time I saw this, it was describing the effect that a carrier group 200 miles outside the harbor has on foreign affairs. <laughs> and they referred to that as having coercive immediacy, which means it's there in such a way that you change your behavior. You can't ignore it. Um, so I find that teams that use a physical wall are walking past the wall. They're yes. looking at the wall. They're touching the cards every day. And it changes how they behave by its mere presence. I have never seen the same thing happen with something that's on a web page somewhere. I completely agree. And the key there is also having it big and visible, having it exposed, is when someone else is walking by and someone looks at it and says, I didn't see that when at the demo. I see a green post that I didn't see at the demo. Or 
the other way around, which says, where is this feature, right? This, this item, this thing, right? You're not collecting this. Right? Those are the critical pieces about uh, the story map and about having the physical card wall. And quite frankly, the product owner is responsible to, to build that, maintain it, and grow it, right? <laughs> Well, as the product owner of this podcast, it's my responsibility to make sure we hit our, our time boxes. Okay. And guys, we're at the time box. Thank you. But uh, this has been an excellent conversation. And Mark, I, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about the product owner role. And Tim, I appreciate you making this connection happen. Uh, otherwise, we would not have this, uh, this conversation. So wanted to thank you guys. And at this point in the show... Uh, this is where this is the free for all plug away. Uh, there's no shame here, so you don't have to worry about it being shameless. But uh, go ahead and please let us know how. First of all, how the listeners can continue the conversation with you. Then, if you have any talks, any books, anything going on that you'd like to plug, uh, please feel free to do that, and I'll make sure that also gets in the show notes. So, Mark, let's start with you. How can people continue the conversation? And is there anything that you'd like to plug or put in front of the listeners for their benefit? A um, couple notes. First is uh, I'm at Agile Delivery. Uh, additionally, uh, Mark at NavigatingAgile.com. I am clearly available, so that's fun, exciting. Um, I love this topic, and I just want to keep moving forward with it. So I, no books, no anything. Although one of these days I got to get the book out on this. I've got about 100 pages of notes on this particular topic. We do look forward to that. I hope uh, I hope you do get your thoughts down. It, like I said at the beginning, and I think we all agree, very misunderstood, but absolutely critical role in our, our Scrum and Agile world. I think the biggest problem we face now is that the development teams are starting to get their act together. And now it's the business has got to step up, and that's a very painful situation. It's a completely different role for them, and they've got to be able to do that. I like to help them do that. Absolutely. We'll make sure we get uh, contact information in the show notes so that if uh, companies or teams would like to reach out to Mark for uh, consulting, training, and assistance on how to be better product owners in your organizations, we'll, you'll be able to do that. Tim. You're always busy. What do you got going on uh, this week? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this week is not so bad. Um, things are settling down. I've got a, a temporarily steady gig that I'm working, um, but I did want to invite everybody to Industrial Logic's blog. Um, there should be, by the time this is live, an article there about modern agile development. I think it will turn some heads. I think it will cause people to rethink what they've been doing all along. If you want to know where, where Anz and Aaron is going, come and see. It's really interesting stuff, um, and we'll let you know what we're doing these days and, and where we're headed and why. Um, the other thing, of course, the Agile Otter blog is, is always open and running. And um, your Agile Otter is looking for opportunities to go and speak or listen at conferences and open spaces. Um, in the Chicago, Milwaukee area. And so I'm open to hearing about things that are going on that I can come and participate in this winter. Man, I, and you know, he, I was, he's being pretty humble here, but uh, Tim, we've never plugged your book on the podcast, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for you. Agile in a Flash. He, uh, Tim does have a book out there. It's out on Amazon. 
Uh, you, it's the way to speed learn agile. And so it's uh, a product of our good friend Tim here and uh, one that you ought to consider. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, at, this, at this time, I'm not plugging anything. I'm one of those weird people, guys. I'm not a consultant, so I'm not plugging talks or books or anything like that. I'm just so happy that we have a growing audience. You guys wouldn't believe the download numbers month over month. Uh, our listeners are very generous with their time, and they're also sharing the information about the podcast with their friends. Cannot thank you all enough for that. We love your feedback. And so on the blog site, on ryanripley.com, each, each of these episodes are posted, and there's an area for comments. I would love to hear what you think about the show. Not asking for any kind of Amazon ranking, or I'm sorry, any iTunes ranking, nothing like that. Just pure comments on the show. How have we helped? Where have we missed the mark? And, and how can we do better for you? And that would be a great way to help this show grow and get better. That's it for this evening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.